Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. All of us in the tennis community right now locked into the action happening in New York. The Western and Southern Open, followed by the U.S. Open, our favorite ATP and WTA players back in action after a five-plus month hiatus. And of course, we are covering all of that action here at Cracked Rackets on our website, CrackedRackets.com, on our YouTube channel, and then of course, across our multiple podcasts, this podcast, the Great Shot podcast, the Mini Break podcast. So if you want to keep up on all of the action. You don't want to miss out on any matches. You want to hear the recaps of each day. You want to see the spread of matches each morning before play begins. You may even want to get in on some of that action with our friends at DraftKings. Rest assured, we are going to have you covered again throughout these next three weeks as we here at Crack Rackets, like everyone else, celebrate the return of professional tour tennis. But, of course, there were so many storylines that happened over these past five months, seeing the way, you know, this global pandemic COVID-19 impacted our beloved sport of tennis, not only removing the opportunities for our favorite players to compete on the court, but also, you know, the structural and organizational financial challenges a global pandemic presents for tennis off of the court as well. It's something we've talked about, again, so much over these past five and a half months. And just because we have professional tennis back, just because we're able to see these pros at the U.S. Open, at this Western and Southern Open play, does not mean those structural or organizational problems have gone away, right? There's still so much to be learned about what's going to happen to the ITF tour. How is it going to be possible to play 15K events, 25, 75, even 125K events uh, in the midst of a global pandemic when those events can't spend the money to, you know, secure a lockdown bubble the way the USTA can for an event, the scale of Western and Southern or scale of the US Open. And so again, it's a really interesting time in professional tennis. That's why I know all of you are going to enjoy today's guest on the Cracked Interviews podcast. It's a guest whose life has been dedicated to our beloved sport. She's a former marketing director and head tour director of the WTA, vice president of the USPTA National Board, a 2001 ITF World Championship winner, and author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Tennis. I, of course, am talking about Trish Faulkner, who is a name you will know if you're a hardcore tennis nerd like myself, but someone who's just been so integral to the growth of the game. Again, someone who's dedicated her life to uh, bettering and growing our beloved sport. And so I'm really excited for all of you to hear this conversation. Now, I will say this conversation happened multiple months ago. It was before we knew New York was going to come back. It was, you know, before we knew what 2020 tennis is going to look like. But nevertheless, it's so fascinating to hear Trisha's thoughts. You know, she elucidates, uh, elucidates, she uh, illustrates the history of ATP WTA merger discussions, talks about pastimes, when it felt like the momentum was growing, talks about, you know, what has to happen for such a merger to occur, why it would be beneficial, why it might not be beneficial, all of these different perspectives, that and more. It's a fantastic conversation. I can't wait for all of you listeners to hear, of course, the reason we are able to have these sorts of conversations here at Cracked Rackets day in, day out is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. Midwest Sports right now offering a really 
cool t- Western and Southern Open giveaway. You have the chance to win Babolat, Head Rackets, Dunlop Rackets, all of this different free gear. But best of all, four free tickets to the 2021 Western and Southern Open. Again, God willing, we will all be able to attend tournaments in person come 2021. Get yourself a chance at four free tickets by signing up for their Western and Southern Open giveaway on their website, MidwestSports.com. Of course, while you're there, you might as well use our promo code CR15 to get yourself, get all of your gear updated, the newest shirts, socks, shoes, rackets, strings, grips, you name it, they've got it all on their website, MidwestSports.com. You use our promo code CR15. Not only will you let them know we sent you, you'll get 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders over $75, and of course, best of all, that free extra can of Wilson uh, can of Wilson extra duty tennis balls. Again, Midwest Sports wanting to ensure you have everything you need to make your return to the court a successful one. So go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15. All right, now you're going to look good. How are you going to feel good so that you can play good? That's where our friends at Aerobar come in. Aerobar, the only tennis-specific energy bar available, delicious and honey oat and chocolate chip flavors, more potassium than a banana, and more importantly, you're putting good stuff in your body. It's not the usual junk. I don't know, you know, what are what are the good sugars, what are the bad sugars, the unsaturated, the saturated, what should how much should you be have? Carbohydrates, are they good? Are they bad? What really is a keto diet? Isn't that just an excuse to eat a lot of steak and chicken? And do we really need a term for that? Can't we just say, hey, I like steak, I like chicken? Um, anyways, all of that is to say the team at Aerobar, they put a lot of thought into those products and they ensure that they are giving you the sort of energy you need to get the best out of your performance on the court. You use our promo code CRACKED15 when you go to their website, aerobar.com, you'll get 15% off your order. So folks, what are you waiting for? Go to aerobar.com, use that promo code CRACKED15. Actually, I know what you're waiting for. You're waiting for my conversation with Trish Faulkner. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to that conversation right now. us on the podcast today, you may know her work as the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Tennis. She has also served as the vice president of the USPTA National Board, a former marketing director and head tour director for the WTA, and perhaps most impressively, the 2001 ITF World Championship winner, uh, Trish Faulkner. Trish, welcome to the uh, podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Dalton. Beautiful day in sunny Florida. Oh, it always, you know, I'm glad to hear that. I feel like at this point, just seeing the sunshine outside is just a bonus for all of us. Where are you located? I am in Indianapolis. And so it's like finally starting to get like high 50s, low 60s. And it's just so tempting. It's like, oh, you want to go outside so badly. But obviously, we are all doing our part to stay safe, stay healthy. And hopefully, you are staying safe and healthy as well. And uh, as I mentioned beforehand, uh, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today because, you know, you have been involved and grained in tennis for the past 40 plus years. And, you know, just a wealth of experience for us to get to pick your brain about that. I'm excited. Let's start with the book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Tennis. First of all, fantastic title. Uh, But, you know, secondly, what inspired you to write that book? Well, actually, it was a friend of mine who had read 
uh, another of the series because it is obviously a pretty big series, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Bridge or Chess or Golf. So uh, she said, you know, you should write one for tennis. And I said, oh, I, I don't think so. You know, that looks like a pretty big book and I'm, I'm busy. And she said, no, I'll help you. And she said, uh, I'm going to call the publisher. So she called the publisher and they said, oh, I'm sorry, but we signed a contract with somebody else. So we said, oh, okay, good idea. And then about uh, a week later, we got a call from the publisher saying that the other individual uh, was not able to meet their deadlines and would we still be interested? And I said, sure, why not? What's the deadline? And basically she said, it's about 500 pages in four months. And I went, that's, uh, <laughs> I can understand why they reneged. I said, that's a pretty tall order. So uh, they told me the format and it's, it's a typical format for the idiot's guides. You know, they do little uh, illustrations for you and they edit it. So it was uh, uh, staying up until 2 a.m. Did a lot of uh, research in my brain and in my past and in my history, but it really taught me a lot. And I was very happy with the finished result, but they were very helpful, the publisher was. Yeah, no, again, it's a fantastic uh, piece of work and it's very translatable. I feel like you wrote it directly for me. I'm a, you know, I'm an idiot and I like tennis, so I needed some guidance. And I'm curious for you because, again, when you're writing a book like this, what is the selling point for tennis? Do you agree with me if I'd say, you know, tennis of all of the sports feels the most accessible, that anyone could play it? Really, all you need is a court, two rackets, and a can of balls? Not necessarily. I don't think it's an easy sport, but uh, again, you can play it at any level. Um, it's not a cheap sport if you start to get into it, but you can get cheap rackets at uh, discount places and the balls are not too bad considering what other prices are for, say, golf or some of the more expensive sports. But it's it's not an easy sport, but if you dedicate yourself to it, obviously you can become very proficient and, and enjoy and always find somebody at your level to play with, whether it be singles or doubles. That's the beauty. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if we can find someone at your level. I mean, multiple ITF World Championship titles for you, and, you know, you had a professional tennis career as well. You've been involved with tennis all of your life. But I'm curious, how did it start? I believe you played squash in your early years, but did that just evolve naturally to tennis? No, tennis came first. When uh, my father was in the service, I'm from Sydney, Australia, and uh, we lived with my grandparents for a while, and they lived behind a tennis court. And when I was little, I used to hear the plop-plop of the ball, and I used to look through the fence. And so my father said, I, all I kept saying was, bat and ball, bat and ball, bat and ball. So eventually, when I was about almost six, we'd moved, but they got me tennis lessons. And that was the beginning of it. I fell in love and hit against the wall every morning, and uh, squash came a little later. My father was into squash he was uh, head of the rugby union in Australia. So he was a sportsman. He got me into a lot of different sports. Mm -hmm. And I know the, you know, Australia's rich tennis history uh, is not something we have to go over. Everyone who follows the sport is well aware of it. But at the time, was tennis one of the, you know, how much of the success Australians were having in the sport was a factor in you picking it up? I think uh, in my time, when I was younger, a lot of people had private courts. So it was not unusual for us to lease out the court for ladies' leagues or men's leagues at night. So um, we had easy access. It was inexpensive at that time to play tennis. The weather was great uh, pretty much all year round. And yes, we had a lot of idols to 
look up to and it was a sport that was fairly easily available and a lot of good coaches. Mm-hmm. And for you, I know you ended up playing, uh, I believe, 12, 13 years on the professional tour. This may be a dumb question. This may be where I get you to swear at me. But was there a moment in your career or just in, you know, as you were playing when you started to realize, hey, I- I'm pretty good at this and I think I could become a professional and make something out of myself as a tennis player? Well, unfortunately, when I played, um, there wasn't any money, no prize money. Uh, and the men and women played together many, many times. We had the same tournaments, same locations, and it was more, this is fun, I enjoy doing it, and maybe I'll do it for a year or so, and um, might have to get a job or go back to university and, and have a real life. So it wasn't really considered to be a profession or a career when I was first starting. Yeah, but obviously you turned it into a professional career, and you talk about it that uh, time period. That's right around the start of the open era and the start of things changing dramatically in tennis. I'm curious uh, because I I can't even imagine what it was like to watch. You know, professionals can't play the Grand Slams. They can't play Davis Cup. Amateurs uh, are the people who are driving really the biggest events for the sport. How different was the atmosphere around professional tennis? And, you know, when did you start to feel that atmosphere change and things become a little bit more, dare I say, professional? Well, obviously, you know, Gladys Heldman sort of started to push it for the, the women's side of the sport. Uh, Jack Kramer for the, for the men's. Uh, and a lot of the top players realized that there was a better way of doing things. So a lot of people paved the way. Uh, Billie Jean King, obviously, for the women was our, our hero, our, our cheerleader to get it started. Uh, there was very little money in the sport originally, so it still wasn't how you would really make your living. But when people started to come and watch us in droves and we got television, then I think we realized that, hey, this was, uh, and we were always in this international competition. I mean, everybody we played on the, on the circuit initially, even though there was no money, they were from all over the world. So um, it, I think it began to, to um, almost evolve by itself because thanks to the top players and, and a lot of hard work and pushing by the right people, it really evolved into the amazing sport it is today, obviously. Mm-hmm. And for you, I believe your playing career ended in 1974, and you know the WTA was founded in 1973. You pretty quickly got directly involved with the WTA, and you know I do want to ask you about your thoughts on the current talks of merging uh, the ATP and WTA tours, but what were those early years like just trying to figure out, you know, what the uh, tour is going to look like, how many events were, are going to be played, how we get people invested in the personalities? How, you know, was that time period more strenuous or do you look back at it and think, wow, what a whirlwind that was. That was a blast. Well, a little bit of everything. <laughs> uh, very, some very long days and nights when we played indoor arenas with one court, we'd get out of there at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, but it was um, it was a great time to see the growth of the sport. Um, obviously, as I said, Gaius Heldman talked Lionel Trains into sponsoring the first event, and then Philip Morris and Joe Coleman came on board with uh, the Virginia Slims, and they really pumped up women's tennis. And, and the same for the men. They had some incredible sponsors. But the players and their personalities made it very interesting. We traveled a lot. Um, you know, I did like 13, 14, 15 weeks in a row as the tour director. 
But the USCA started the circuit for the women and then the WTA formed it and started their own. And, uh, and then after Virginia Slims phased out, Avon came along and had a whole new concept about the Avon Futures Tour. So players ranked from 300 to 500 had a chance to progress very quickly up through the ranks through the main tour. So people like Pam Shriver, Tracy Austin, those sort of players came up very quickly, which they probably couldn't do as easily today. Mm-hmm. Was there a player uh, you know, who you remember in particular breaking through who you just thought that player is going to be a star? Uh, probably Monica Sellis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but there are a lot. You know, uh, Sabatini came on the scene and you looked at her and you thought, wow, she has everything. That incredible backhand, top spin, beautiful uh, looks and a nice personality, but there were so many that that were coming up there, particularly through the the Avon and the Virginia Slims type of tour. That um, they they started very very young. Steffi Graf, I mean Pam Shriver, they all came up through that system, and uh, luckily they made it all the way to the top. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. The reason I ask is because I've been doing some research through tennis's history of late, and that Martina Navratilova had seasons of ninety and three, eighty six and one, seventy eight and two, back to back to back. I can only imagine what it's like to see someone just dominate the game in that sort of fashion. It must have been just an absolute thrill, and to see that, I, I, you know, I know her greatness. I think does still get appreciated, but that should be something we talk about every day. That she went eighty-six and one during a season—that's just incredible. It is incredible in, in any sport. If you have those percentages, you're obviously the the goat, as they say. But <laughs> uh, she was my favorite player to watch, just because of the uh, the way she played. A lot of serve and volley great doubles player, doubles and mixed player. Everybody, even if they watch the way she played uh, 20 years ago, you're going to see a great doubles player. You can learn a lot. But she was uh, obviously uh, in the beginning, not somebody that was appreciated for her skill, uh, more maybe uh, for interests outside of the sport and and, uh, what, what she had to overcome, I think. But her story is fantastic, and what she did for the sport as far as fitness is concerned is incredible. Yeah, just an outstanding talent. And someone whose game is really fun to watch nowadays, even on YouTube, just how different she played compared to how players play now. And, you know, again, uh, to, to your uh, – I want to get back to you because your you, your career, what you, all you have done for the game to te- – for, uh, for the game of tennis deserves to be celebrated. Um, you know, you have stayed involved with the game of tennis your entire life, whether it's, you know, again, with the WTA, whether it's writing a book, whether it's uh, even becoming a teaching pro. And I believe you were the 2014 teaching pro of the USPTA Coach of the Year, which again, another credit uh, to you. Um, but what is it about the game of tennis that you've fallen in love with? Why do you keep coming back to it? Obviously, it's a passion when you do something for as many years as I have. Um, I really didn't think I was ever going to be making a career out of it. As I said, that it was there was no money in it. I was going to go back and probably teach Latin or something terrible in uh, in college. But um, I I was an athlete. I did a lot of different sports, and uh, my parents gave me great opportunities to really seek my passion. And I could see that I could. Uh, sustain myself and play the tour. I made lots of friends that we keep in contact even today. And then as as the sport grew, 
it, it just was something that I felt I wanted to give back to as well. I realized my playing days were going to be over. I had two kids and I went back for a couple of years, actually had one of my better results uh, with my two kids watching me at the, the US Open. But um, I enjoyed very much being a tour director for the WTA and servicing the players and getting to watch everybody. And then with the USPTA, obviously as a teaching professional, that's the best organization to belong to and I'm very proud to be on the board and hopefully help direct them in the right uh, right direction these days as we move together with the USTA to make this sport great. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to talk about your thoughts again on the merger talks between the ATP and the WTA. I do want to talk about your thoughts on the future of the game of tennis in general and the way you've seen the sport changed. But I have to ask you, uh, because this is one of the most impressive accomplishments I can think of. I know you are a breast cancer survivor. Uh, In 1998, you experienced it for the first time. And immediately again, you come back in 2001 and win an ITF World Championship and you got to do it in front of your family as well. And just, you know, for you during that time period, you've talked about it in previous interviews of tennis is a way to help you through uh, the the struggles that come when you're fighting off something like breast cancer. And I'm just curious, can you talk about that experience? Because to me, that is just one of the most impressive things I've ever heard. Well, thanks, Dalton. And yes, I, I take my hat off to all breast cancer survivors because we all go through something that's a little scary when you first hear that word, but um, I had great support with my friends and, and my, I had that goal to go to Perth, Australia with my family watching to try to win that world championship. I'd come close a couple of other times. And in fact, I'd had like six match points in the final one year and that was probably one of my biggest disappointments. But, um, you know, it, it's just, you have to, I think have something to really work towards when you're fighting something like that, whether it's, you know, I've had knee replacement and, and you think, oh, I'm never going to get back on the court again. But if you love something, you do it. And, and it's a passion. And I've enjoyed every part of the sport from playing to administrator to coach, uh, back to administrator again. And, and um, you know, I have my, my company that runs special events and, and runs tournaments for uh, different people and different corporations as corporate outings. So I really feel like I'm the I'm giving back that actually the sport gave so much to me. Mm-hmm. Do you, I happen to the part of my love for the sport really comes from the fact that I view it as the most empowering uh, thing I do in my life because or at least it was early on in my life I suppose and it taught me to be confident it taught me that you know if I want to have success it's on how hard I want to work and how much you know tennis is because it's an individual sport you reap the results you sow um, is that a fair assessment do you think tennis as you know an empowerment in people who play the sport absolutely i think it gives you great confidence the other part of it is you can go out one day and play a great game of tennis and beat somebody that you don't think you're going to beat and feel very confident then the next week you lose love and one to somebody that you know you can beat and it's it really is a it's a great um i think builder of personalities and uh, even Roger Federer, when he was younger, didn't have a great temper. And I have to say I was probably the same way, although I hate to compare myself to Roger. But, but you know, I think it, it turns you into a very honest, true, competitive, though, uh, but strong individual. And, and whether you're playing singles or doubles or, or mixed uh, or teaching, 
um, tennis. I think someone's true personality eventually comes out on the tennis court. Yeah, look, I uh, I have always identified most with Andy Murray because I just understand what it feels like to go crazy when your forehand's not working and just want to scream at the world. That was me. And so I get that. And yeah, all of the quirky humor, it's because my tennis coach called me frisky. And I was like, oh, he's clear. there must be a reason behind that. And so I, I completely agree. Your true identity is shown. All right, which of this was most impressive in your mind? Because they're all so impressive. Being ranked number one in the 50s age group, the 55s, or the 60s? Because at a certain point you're just racking up the accomplishments right uh i think the very first time i was ranked number one in the 50s i I won my first gold ball when i was in the 45s i was just playing a friend got me back into the sport i was only playing for fun but she said no no you've got to come and play the national tournaments so i think the first one is always something that you remember um and you played a lot of the same people and sometimes you beat them, sometimes you didn't. But I love to play doubles. I, I have to admit I was a much better doubles player than singles player. But And I, I used to try to feel like I was Martina because I love playing on grass. <laughs> so I, I was a servant volleyer. So uh, on a good day, I was great. On a bad day, I got passed all the time. <laughs> oh, that's half the fun, right? Uh, no, I, I love to hear that. Yeah, I I feel like the rivalries do exist. That's part of my fear of getting back into tennis is I feel like people will see me and they'll be like, what is this kid doing? And I'll be like, no, 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 this is just how I express myself on the court now. Um, but no, I'm glad to hear that, you know, again, part of the enjoyment of the tennis community is it's a lifelong sport. And once you're a part of that community, you're always a part of that community. Um, and again, uh, I, I do want to ask you as someone who has seen the game of tennis evolve and the changes you know, that it's undergoing financially, the changes that it's undergoing structurally, the way technology has changed the sport. I mean, let's start here. What were your reactions when you heard the news that there are now emerging talks between the ATP and WTA tours of about a potential merger? I guess about time. <laughs> I, As I said, when I played, we played side by side with the men, um, small tournaments, big tournaments. And yes, I think uh, because of the way that the, the tours started, they had to be by themselves. But uh, I, I think that, um, I think both WTA and ATP would uh, gain a lot by doing most of the tournaments together from a television standpoint, from a sponsor standpoint, uh, from a player standpoint. The, the players like to mix and mingle. They like the Grand Slams. They like the uh, Indian Wells and the Miami type of tournaments where you've got everybody together. And I think it's it's better for the sport. It's better for the players and I think better for the sponsors. And I think uh, the, the viewers on television will get uh, even greater matches to watch, not just the Grand Slams. Yeah, and I'm curious, you talked about uh, what it was like when I think it was the Avon Tour started giving a fast track for players ranked 300 to 500. Do you worry that, you know, those players may suffer under a merge tour, that the, you know, focus will be on how do we make sure the top of the game exceed, uh, succeeds and, you know, maybe those profits, you know, as they really don't right now, won't trickle down to the players ranked 200 through 1,000, the real, you know, infrastructure of the game? Well, I think that's sort of a problem now anyway. I know on the men's tour, it's uh, very, very hard once you're below 500 to make uh, ends meet. I mean, you have to travel 
a long way, sometimes country to country, to get your ranking up, to get your ranking points. The women's a little easier. So we've always talked about maybe trying to regionalize it to some extent, so the expenses are a little less. Um, yeah, it's a tough road. If you're coming through the ranks, very few of them fast track it. You've got journeymen that travel for years and years and years, and they get that one lucky win that gets them into the 110, that gets them into the Grand Slam, and then they're okay for two or three years. So um, I think the ITF and, and all of the federations are working on how to handle the, the lower ranked players to make sure that we do have that pipeline coming up in, in both men's and women's tennis. But it is tough to make it into the top 100. There's no doubt about it. So, yeah. and that's where you start to make the big money and you can afford to travel the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about the various federations and the various tournaments. And right now, everyone's their own individual contractor. You're all bargaining on your own. You're negotiating players' appearances, uh, player fee appearances for your events on your own. Uh, is it fair to say there are just too many entities, too many competing interests in tennis right now, the way it's currently constituted? Well, a lot of the tournaments are owned by a couple of uh, management companies as well. You know, the ones in Europe are, are often owned by the, the Federation. So, yes, it's, it's a lot of different owners and directors and where the money's coming from. But I think the sponsors have held true pretty much the last 10 years. They've been very strong. Uh, television rights, I think, are good. Thank goodness for Tennis Channel. Uh, you know, they, uh, I think they've really brought in a lot of the grassroots players to understanding how the sport works and a great way to learn is to watch the best players. So I think, uh, I, you know, I, I think the sport's definitely heading in the right direction. I would love to see the two tours combine most of the time if possible. I know I realize sometimes they can't, but uh, you know, the Avon futures, they're, they're I guess main goal was the, the lower ranked players to try to give them the opportunity to make it, not necessarily through financial gain, but the opportunity to get through very quickly. So it was all done on a point basis. And if you got to the last four in pre-qualifying, you moved up. If you got to the last four in qualifying, you moved up to the main circuit. So can't go much faster than that. That was like a three-week move. <laughs> no, that, that I'm sure a lot of players hear that and say, yeah, I would love to do that now, uh, certainly. Uh, I'm curious because you, you sort of talked there about the competing interest between a player, the players in the top 100 and those outside of it. And, you know, part of the other talks that have emerged as of late is the idea of forming a player union. And though that's not a new concept. That's a thought that's been around for forever. But it seems to me, and, you know, again, this is, uh, I think this has always been the case, is that the interests for the top players and the lower-ranked players are just so vastly different. The incentives, the rankings points, the prize money available, that it would also, it would ultimately not be in the interests of the top 10 players to form a union that thinks of the players as one collective interest and you know every player outside the top 100 also thinks about the day they'll be top 10 and they want to reap the benefits and such I'm curious what do you think uh, about the idea of a players union what do you think the potential pros of that would be well I used to sit in on the WTA board meetings and I can tell you that the the players were maybe divided 50 percent of them were top players and 50 percent were lower ranked, but in the top 200, basically. But they, they were, their thought process was always about the entire tour, not just about what's best for me. Um, 
you know, I, I read uh, Dominique Team's quote the other day about the, the players that he felt weren't worthy of getting assistance, whether it be financial, obviously through this time, this was a comment about COVID and the fact that nobody's been earning any money, top or bottom players in the last uh, six or eight weeks, and maybe not in the next six weeks either, depending on what comes back. Um, but you know, some people have a lot more talent than others, and uh, they're gonna make it through one way or the other, uh, through hard work, but also through talent. And sometimes some of the others are willing to stay on the lower rank tours. They're just, they realize they're not gonna make it and they love tennis and they can go week to week. So I think a players union would help, but I think the boards, both ATP and WTA, have always acted in the best interest of the entire tour and not just in the top players. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's completely fair. And we've seen that sentiment from so many of the top players. Yes, team was the outlier, I would say, not the rule. And so that's, you know, that's probably a good benefit that's, you know, net positive for both tours. Um, all right, a- enough with the tours. Let's get back to you because you're the star of this show. Uh, I know, you know, you, uh, un- unfortunately under these circumstances, but after 25 years at Ball and Isles Country Club, you recently stepped down as uh, director of tennis there. Can you talk about your experience just, you know, for 25 years to be the director of tennis, I can only imagine, or just a member of the, the teaching team, you know, what was that experience like for you? Why was teaching tennis something that you continue to be engaged with? Because I imagine, you know, young kids can get frustrating and more and more so as the generations go on. Well, I taught tennis for many, many years when I lived in Michigan. And then I started working for the tour and I sort of said to myself, I'm not going to go back to teaching. It was hard on the body and long hours on the court and I'll, I'll stay in the administrative side of things but uh, I uh, when I left WTA and I formed my sports marketing company I started teaching again and I thought you know I really like this so uh, yeah they ended up uh, recruiting me to come back to Ballon Isles and uh, when I started there we only had eight courts but we had eight clay courts two red clay, two grass, and two hard courts. So we were like a Grand Slam facility, right? (laughs) So it was a a big club, three golf courses, and lots of members, close to 4,000. So it was a big job, and we grew it up to 23 courts and uh, obviously have some very famous people that have played there and practiced there. I was very sorry to see the grass courts disappear, but uh, we needed more, more room for the clay courts. So... Uh, you know, I teach everybody from five-year-olds. I've got two 85-year-olds that I still teach, and I've been teaching them for like 30-something years. And uh, they're, they're my idols. I love it. And I love doing the – I do a lot of national tournaments that go all the way up through the 85s, and it's fabulous to watch them play at any age. But teaching is a passion, and I always enjoyed it. I probably will still moonlight a little bit, even though I'm not at Ballon Isles, I still have some people that keep calling me. So, um, but watching somebody take it up for the first time and get that thrill and that feeling is something that you just keep wanting to have over and over again. No, I can only imagine. Um, I, I have to go on a quick tangent. You lived in Michigan? Yes, I did. Yes. My, can, I, can I ask my where? Husband had, my husband was transferred to Detroit, so we lived outside of Detroit. A suburbs? Ah, Bloomfield Hills. Oh, I am from Franklin. Uh, my Yeah, parents, West Bloomfield. I mean, I grew up West Bloomfield. They moved to Franklin, but I'm a Southeast Michigan guy. Were you a sports clubber? 
Well, I was uh, a pro at Franklin Racquet Club. Oh, okay. And then I moved to Square Lake Racquet Club, which was a little further north, right, which I don't think is there anymore. And then I moved to Deer Lake Racquet Club. But Franklin Racquet Club is fabulous. I mean, have you been back there lately? Oh, I was it's, home. It has this, everything. I was, it was my little brother's 18th birthday. And so I went home to my parents this weekend. Stayed safe, stayed quarantined. They hosed me down before I came right. in. Um, but yeah, Franklin, I, yes, I, I know the area. I believe Square Lake Racquet Club is now called Bloomfield Tennis. Um, and Deer Lake, I've played the majority of my tournaments at, so I know those courts right. quite well. I, I was going to say, underneath the Australian accent, I heard a little bit of Michigan in there. So uh, I, I didn't want to... I lived there. 18 years I was there. My kids and grandkids still are still there. They, yeah. they didn't leave. Oh, no. I, I'm glad to hear Franklin Racquet Club near and dear to my heart. We actually just had Amy Frazier on the podcast, and I know she's... Oh, who's... Amy was one of my students. Really? Okay. <laughs> and Franklin and her mom worked there. Yeah, I know that family very well. Mm-hmm. And I was coached by Ed Nagel, and so I'm sure that, yeah, that, yeah that's... That's the guy from the area, and Armin's son, Josh Molino, was my high school coach. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's a tangent for all of you Michigan listeners. Like, my parents will hear this part of the pod and be very excited. Uh, but, you know, anyways, uh, for you, I actually, I see here, were you, you did a little WJR work, a little bit of radio action? When Bob Reynolds, which is a long time ago, was the sports reporter, uh, usually once a week, but sometimes more if there was a big tournament going on. I would uh, call in because often I was on the road with the WTA at a different city in Europe or somewhere. And I would call in and give like a five minute sports report on mainly tennis, racket sports. And um, it was it was fun. I loved it. And uh, some of the time I went down to the studio, but I did that for like four or five years. And then I also played on the Detroit Love. So I have a I have a lot of attachment to Michigan. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Unfortunately, I don't have the, you know, w- uh, 760 WJR memorized, but I could do always all the time, News Radio 950, and do the WWJ, because that's just burnt into my head. Uh, but, no, I feel like Southeast Michigan does have a, a richer tennis history than it gets credit for. A lot of good players came up there, especially late 80s, early 90s. Well, Kalamazoo was the boys' 18s, right, for many, many, many years. And we had great indoor facilities, so we could play all year round. And uh, we had great junior academies there. So really great coaches, really good coaches. And, of course, you can't forget Gene Hoxie, who started everything in Hamtramck with uh, Fred Kowaleski and Peaches Barkowitz. A lot of great people came out of uh, Detroit area. You and me included, I suppose. Uh, Yeah. Um, But so again, to get back, I know uh, for you, you know, 25 years uh, at Ball Isles uh, Country Club, uh, you know, I'm sure this is not the way you wanted it to end. But I mean, you know, Palm Beach area is noted for its amount of tennis talent. And I know you've seen a lot of talented players come through uh, your courts, obviously. You know, give me some of the highlights. Who are some of your favorite players you've coached over the years? Well, obviously I didn't coach Venus and Serena, but uh, they practice at our facility frequently. And uh, I would always tell my students, go watch, take a minute, go watch. You're going to see the greatest players in the world right right in your neighborhood there. And so that was really, really fun. And to get to know Richard, he's an amazing man. Uh, really had some amazing daughters. Um, Brenda Schultz McCarthy would come and often practice. And then when she retired, would bring some of her students. Uh, Lauren Davis came. Um, 
The person that comes most frequently now is, um, oh, big tall guy, what's his name? Uh, Riley Opelka. <laughs> Riley, Riley comes and uh, you, just, you just hear him, obviously, when he <laughs> serves. So um, we've had Matt Solander do some clinics for us and uh, Roy Emerson, Fred Stolle. We've really had some great people. We had, um, I think, uh, let's see who else. A lot of people because we had a, a wonderful center court and great viewing. So we could fit almost 600 people just in our center court there. For a private country club, that's sort of unusual. Mm -hmm. um, great, great courts. And the hard courts in Florida are hard to come by. So a lot of them would come and practice on our hard courts. Mm -hmm. it's, it does feel like, and again, I'm a Michigan guy, so I was in indoor hard courts. And again, you know the bubbles I'm talking about, which just makes me so excited. Cranbrook. Uh, remember the Cranbrook bubble? Oh, do I remember it? I've played many matches there. Um, but, you know, so to uh, your point, it does feel like in Florida there's an abundance of, you know, the green clay, and then you guys have a couple of red clay as well. And I'm curious. Curious, uh, as training for the game has changed, as the sport has evolved, become more physical, do you think it is more important? You know, what surface would you say it would be your preferred to have a young aspiring tennis player start training on? Well, unfortunately, I think the young players have to train on the hard courts because probably 65% of the tournaments are on hard courts, regardless of where you are. But I know that um, at the uh, tennis center in Lake Nona, uh, there aren't any grass courts there. So that's, I don't think, a wise move because I think it's a very specific type of style of play when you play on grass. But they have the hard courts, they have the, the mini courts for um, the, you know, the 10 and under game, and they have lots of clay courts, and they have the indoor courts. So they're really catering to all the surfaces that the American players have to play on. Clay is obviously the easiest on your body. Grass is great on the knees, but you have to bend a lot. So, uh, But I think the juniors have to learn how to play on the hard courts just simply because that's where most of the tournaments are. Not so much Florida, but certainly the rest of the, the world and the country have more hard courts. I feel like players should just play pickleball to train for grass tennis. You're getting low. It's bad bounces. You just kind of get used to it. Yeah. A lot of little dinky angles, right? Drop shots. Exactly. You have to be creative. So there we go. We're solving things there. Um, but yeah, I'm curious because, you know, and it's sort of, you talked about the regional uh, ranking for to have players ascend in, in terms of relating that to now current day's training, uh, given the globalization of the sport, no one country is dominating, you know, producing the best players anymore. And I'm curious, you know, how do you think training has changed uh, throughout, you know, how much, is it more difficult to become a good tennis player now than it was 40 years ago? And, you know, what, how has the training, how has the style of the game developed and, you know, the training habits alongside of it? Well, obviously, they spend an incredible amount of time off the court training in the gym or stretching. Uh, you know, for every two hours they put in on the court, they put two hours in, in, the, in the gym, in the fitness center, whether it's at home or in a regular gym. Um, but, you know, the United States has so many other sports, too, that, that draw particularly young boys to uh, away from tennis. So it's hard for them to concentrate just on tennis. And I think a lot of the smaller countries that don't have as many varieties of sports have uh, the opportunity to really train them into the tennis business, so to speak, because it, it's a business nowadays. You, you have to train pretty much seven days a week, hours at a time, and that 
it also becomes expensive. You know, you go to the voluntary IMG academies and uh, you've, you've got to have some money or a sponsor to be able to afford that. And certainly starting off on the tour, you have to be able to afford the travel and the coach. Mm-hmm. No, it, I, I have fitness trainers and psychologists. So they have their, their touring group. Yeah, no, it, it's certainly, it's more, maybe more difficult now than ever to become a tennis player because as you mentioned, it can get expensive, just so expensive, uh, the better and you get all the little tournament fees and all the coaching fees, as you mentioned, they all start to add up. But, you know, for you, you know, that being said, what do you think about the health of the sport of the game of tennis right now? Do you think it's growing at a sustainable rate? Do you worry about the future of tennis in, you know, 2020? Obviously, this all sports are uh, impacted by this global pandemic, but it does feel in particular uh, that tennis, just given the international nature of the sport, will be hurt worse than maybe some of the domestic leagues that can start considering to uh, coming back as things get better in their areas. You know, what What do you feel about the health of the game? How do you think this coronavirus pandemic has maybe shined a spotlight on some of its structural flaws? Well, well, that's a big question. Yeah, you know, we're, we're near the home stretch, so bringing out the big guns. So, sorry about my dog in the background. There's a bunny rabbit in my backyard, so he's going a little crazy. <laughs> um, the, I think the sport is, was in great shape. They had certainly some wonderful up and coming young uh, future stars, both the men and the women's side. Um, I don't know what's going to happen now. I, I know that um, it certainly has brought all the organizations together to try to figure out how to make the uh, touring pros that aren't making a lot of money, how to keep them afloat. And um, the USPTA is working with the USTA uh, to help the teaching professionals that have not been able to make any money for the last six weeks because unless you have a court in your backyard, there's no way that you're allowed to teach. So um, some of the courts were open, I think, in California a little bit. But otherwise, I think 85% of the teaching professionals in the United States were out of work for at least five or six weeks. And some of them don't, uh, that's their only source of income. So I think that has to be looked at as to how to handle something like when, when something happens, when we have a hurricane or a tornado or something like that, it affects tennis and maybe a little bit more even than some of the other uh, high profile sports. But why, what I think the best has come out of this COVID is the fact that we're all pulling together. We're all working together to make sure that A, we're safe, B, we're taking care of the people we teach and also taking care of our professionals and that the top players are looking to help the lower-ranked players. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it does sound like, as you mentioned, that dog is taking care of the rabbit. He's going after it. No, no. I but the rabbit's <laughs> bigger than my dog, which is rather small. No, I, I, we had, we have a dog uh, here at CR headquarters, aka where I live. And during, I was doing an interview last week, and he was just doing sprints across the hall. And like, you heard him slam into a wall, and the guest was like, "What was that?" I was like, "No, no, no, don't worry about it. Like, he's fine. <laughs> yeah, just uh, carry on." So I completely understand there. Um, all right, you have been so kind with your time. So I promise, home stretch of ten- questions, and they get more fun from here. That was the last tough one. What are your thoughts on team tennis? Are you a fan? Uh, I like the concept because uh, Billie Jean always has great ideas. And again, I like men and women playing together. I always loved mixed doubles. And I like the short format, which we've ended up going to a lot with, even on the tour, they have, you know, the shortened third set. 
and we have uh, half-day tournaments for the kids. And so everything has to be more compact. Everybody's busy, particularly the younger players coming up and, and the people that are watching. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I like team tennis, and I'm glad that the people that initially started it stayed with it and that we have good franchises. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a big fan. I keep waiting for us to get a team back in Detroit because that would just be heaven for me. Um, all right. I I, I'm curious. I never made it past the Prince Graphite racket. That's my favorite racket in history. What is your favorite racket that you've used in your history? Well, I started off with the Dunlop Max Ply, obviously, right? <laughs> of course. Didn't, right? But then through the years uh, when I was uh, with WTA, Martina would just give me her Ionexes that she started to play with. So I used that for a while because it was free and it, I figured maybe something would rub off. But I've been a Wilson girl for a long, long time. And when they brought out the profile, I was getting into the old lady era. That was a great racket. It was big, but I loved it. But now I just I play with the Wilson Ultra and uh, I've been with Wilson for a long time. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of Wilson as well. The problem was I tried to play with a K-Factor when I was younger, and I just wasn't good enough for it. And then I went back to the graphite, and it worked for me. I've tried the burn and some of the others, but uh, I'm, I need that slightly bigger head these days. <laughs> you and me both. Um, all right, over, you know, your favorite player to watch uh, during your time involved in the game, game of tennis. Well, when I was on the tour, it was Martina, but these days... Oh, and I loved Agassi, but these days I love to watch Roger Federer play. I yeah. just, he is the perfect gentleman, great strokes, win or lose. He's so gracious. He's great for the sport and everybody should look up to him. Like I said, I used the K-Factor when I was younger, so um, I I have that similar. I have his eyebrows as well, as you can't. Yeah, you do, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I I stay uh, to form. Um, I think these days he has a a little beard, too. I saw him. Yeah, no. Challenge, right? Yeah, this is just an accident. This will go away fairly quickly. Um, but okay, your favorite doubles team because the, you know the Bryan brothers are near the end of their time and they've been great. They've been the team of my lifetime, but not my favorite team. I'm curious, who's your favorite team? Uh, well, obviously they changed the game of men's doubles, uh, and I think just as Billy Jean and Rod Laver and everybody before them moved the needle, they moved that needle in a big way to make it much more exciting and a different way to play doubles, even for the women. Um, I don't know. I used to love to watch Martina and Pam Shriver play because again, they were very aggressive at a time when people weren't, but I, I still have to stick with uh, the Bryan brothers. I used to like watching Andy and Jamie Murray play together because uh, they had great rapport and, and almost knew what one another was going to do. But, I don't know. Bob, Bob and Mike still my favorites. Yeah, I I love watching Martina and Pam, as you mentioned. I also love watching McEnroe and Fleming. I think McEnroe was just exceptional. Oh, great hands! He had great great hands. Great great drop great drop uh, volleys. Really good. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. All right, last one for you, uh, because you know we keep seeing changes to the way Davis Cup is played, the way Fed Cup is played. What do those events mean for you, and what have you thought about the changes? Well, I think everybody loves playing for their country, but I think it did need to be shaken up a little bit because it was sort of a little tired and just like everything else, you have to change the format, shorten it, figure out a way to make it easier. The, the hardest part for the ITF was fitting it into the schedule, which was already really crowded with so many big, good events. So 
that was one of the reasons they had to take a long, hard look at it because they weren't getting all the top players all of the time to play. And the players, I think, really pushed that, that needle as well to try to say, hey, let's make it work for us and for you to make it a, a bigger event and easier for the smaller countries to qualify if they have the players. So I agree with the movement. I do. I think it's better for, for both IT, for the ITF and also for the players. And um, Federation Cup, I think, uh, take a little bit more time. I think Davis Cup is well on the road to making it work. Fed Cup might take a little longer. Yeah, it sounds like you would be okay with no ad scoring on the pro tour, maybe even slams going two out of three. Am I wrong? Uh, well, <laughs> I think a lot of it's driven by television, you know, and I think that's what makes the double so interesting now is that you know it's not going to take four or five hours, but you get into those Nadal Federer or Djokovic Federer long tussles in the Grand Slam finals and and. At least they've they've come to a point where they know they have to win, so that John Isner doesn't take three days to finish his matches, right? So, um, I, I think you know we at Virginia Slims, uh, the finals in Madison Square Garden, we tried best of five sets for like three years, and it won. I think one final went uh, no, two finals went to four sets. None of them ever went to five sets. But the women are happy with best of three. Um, I definitely think doubles should be the, the 10 you know, match tie break. Um, and I think they're doing the right thing with the men's when they play best of five. So I would keep it the way it is. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with your sentiment on that, the entirety of that answer. Um, but seriously, uh, Trish, again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you for all you have done, your continued uh, involvement, life service really to the game, the community uh, of tennis. Uh, we always appreciate getting the time to chat with you. Hope you stay safe and healthy. And again, you know, you're always welcome to come back on the show. Thanks, Logan. It was a pleasure. Sorry about the dog. And go, go Michigan. <laughs> I'll take it. Go blue. Yes. Thanks again. Yeah. Take care. All right. Bye. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with author, vice president of the USPTA National Board, lifelong servant to our beloved sport of tennis, Trish Faulkner. And again, a huge thank you to Trish for not only agreeing to come on to the podcast, but just everything she's done for our beloved sport. The WTA, the ATP, it's not where it is today, if not for the incredible work of people like Trish Faulkner. And so again, it was such a pleasure to get the chance to chat with her. Hopefully all of you enjoyed that podcast podcast as well. And again, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Alex, aren't all eyes turned to New York right now? What are you guys doing at Cracked Rackets to cover that? Well, to answer that question, a lot of different things. We're three platforms wide. You want it in video form. You want to see our content. You want to see our smiling faces. You want to see the incredible work of super producer Daniel Westoff. Rest assured, you can by subscribing to our YouTube channel. You'll ensure you don't miss anything over these next three weeks of action. Of course, on this podcast, the Great Shot podcast, the Mini Break podcast, we'll be rocking and rolling. Day recaps, picks for the next day, odds for you to wager on, our fun we have with DraftKings, that and more, all 
all of that on those podcasts. So be sure to like, rate, subscribe, review to all of them. And of course, we'll be covering that on our website as well, where you can find all of our content, crackedrackets.com. You need those more immediate updates. Be sure to hit that follow button on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, either at Cracked Rackets. I'm at Great Shot Pod. In case you want to throw me a DM or two throughout the day. And, you know, I'm going to be active. I'm going to be watching matches. I'm going to be talking about them, giving my thoughts on Twitter. Always love to hear your thoughts on the matches as well. So please feel encouraged to participate alongside of us. Speaking of which, huge shout out to our Patreon subscribers who continue to offer their support day in, day out. The stuff we do here at Cracked Rackets wouldn't be possible without that support or without the support we get from our friends over at Midwest Sports or Aerobar. So shout out to all of them. And of course, shout out to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westa for the of an editing job they do day in day out making all of this possible again three weeks of professional tennis action we're ready for it we want to help you all get ready for it as well so be sure to check out all of our website uh, all of our content on the website crackedrackets.com but with that being said for our wonderful guest Trish Faulkner our super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin you've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast stay safe stay healthy and we will see you all next time thanks everyone thanks everyone